so much. As a, that's a great song right there. Great message in that song. and God sure has been good to us. My goodness. Our last message, Psalm chapter 40. We talked about that new song that God gives us. Amen? And it's a song of devotion. He heard my cry and he inclined unto me. Amen? It's a song of deliverance. Amen? When you think about Psalm chapter 40, it says there that he brought us up out of an horrible pit and out of the miry clay. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we think about how uh, one day it's going to get real bad on earth and we're, we're quite literally during the tribulation going to have hell on earth. But that, listen, you won't be anywhere near that if you're a believer. You won't be anywhere near that. And you won't be anywhere near hell either because God saved you out of it. He delivered you from the power and penalty of sin. So song of devotion, song of deliverance, song of dependability. He set my feet upon a rock. A steady place. You think about the difference between the miry clay and slipping and sliding in the steady rock that He is, that Jesus is. Then we talked about as a song about His direction. He established my goings. You know, you look back at your life before salvation, you look at your life after salvation, and those are two different paths, aren't they? He established our going on that narrow way. And then think about His doings over and over in that uh, passage there in Psalm 40. It says, He inclined unto me. He heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit. He brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock. He established my going. He hath put a new song in my mouth. You say, what, what is about His doings? He did it. He did it. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be, hey, how'd you get here? It's all going to be, forgive me, it's all going to be the same story. He did it. He did it. Amen. And thank God for His goodness. In Psalm 51, look at it there, if you would, with me. It's Again, just if you have a, a study Bible with some notes, uh, most of us, even if you don't have a study Bible, have that introductory passage. It's really interesting when you think about this passage that David said, this was to go to the chief musician... A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. I, I took some time and mentioned this in Sunday school today. I don't think any of us would want the sins that we have committed over the last 24 to 48 hours up there on the screen for everybody. Brother Ryan... David said, make a song out of this one. Make a song. I mean, think about that. Think about that. David is a very prominent and fascinating Bible character. Many, many series of sermons have been preached on David. I've actually thought, I haven't preached one just yet, but I've thought about it several times. He's seen as, if you go back in the Old Testament, he's seen in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 as a humble and faithful shepherd. Remember when Saul was head and shoulders and, and everyone knew that he was going to be king because he looked like a king. But remember what God said to Samuel? He said, don't look on his countenance. 
neither the height of his stature. And then he gave us that great phrase, by the way, that many people uh, pervert and misuse, that uh, God seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. David was a humble and faithful shepherd. Hey, we remember David as a fearless warrior. In the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, there's Goliath just spewing his vile condemnation of God and God's people. And forgive me, uh, Uncle Joe, David says, who's this clown? Everybody else is, did you see the size of him? David said, no, but I saw the size of God. I, I have in my wide margin Bible uh, a friend of mine, Brother Tom Bradley, he's in heaven, amen, and he said, uh, he said he saw a little pipsqueak. That's what David saw when he looked at Goliath. He saw, he saw a loud little pipsqueak, like a Pomeranian. <laughs> amen? That's what he saw when he, when he, saw, uh, when he saw Goliath. He was, a, 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 you think about it, a fearless warrior. You know what? In, in the courts of Saul, he was a loyal servant, wasn't he? Saul had an evil spirit. It was actually from the Lord. The Lord commanded this evil spirit to come upon Saul. He'd been disobedient. And remember, David played skillfully. And the evil spirit departed. And then even when Saul, forgive me, uh, you, you ever had somebody literally pin you to the wall? Well, Saul tried to do that with David, but in a whole different vein. He actually took out a javelin and tried to pin him to the wall. And the Bible says David behaved himself wisely. He was a loyal servant. You know what he's called in 2 Samuel 23.1? He's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. Wrote many of the psalms that bring us great comfort. He's called the king in Matthew chapter 1 verse 6. I think probably the most interesting title for David is found in Acts 13.22. And it speaks about David as being a man after God's own heart. What a truly amazing life that David led. Let's, however, if you would, hold your place there in Psalm 51 and go back with me to 1 Kings chapter 15. And then we're going to go to 2 Samuel. Just one verse in 1 Kings chapter 15. It's an interesting verse. First Kings 15, 5. Are we there? Amen. It says, Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, comma, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. I believe to understand Psalm 51, and we're going to come back there, you must set the scene. To understand the hot tears that poured down David's face in Psalm 51, you have to understand the dark sins that make up the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So let's go, if we could, go over to 2 Samuel chapter number 11, please. 
And I'm just going to kind of give you an outline as we go through it and just, just make some comments. And again, I, I trust that the Sunday night crowd, many of you are familiar with this, but some of you may not be familiar with this biblical account. And by the way, that's what Sunday night church is for. Going through the Bible, learning, amen? Obviously preaching, but it says there in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, and it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. We're going to look in, in, in further in this matter of Uriah the Hittite. But can I tell you this, young people, can you please get this down? The first thing we learn, the first downward step, the first misdeed that we find about David is this. He was evidently in the wrong place. He was evidently in the wrong place. As king, it tells us right here, this was the time that kings would be with their men in the battle. And he stayed home. Can I, can I just share some wisdom of 51 years? You know, somebody said when you get older, the problem is you have all this wisdom and nobody wants to listen. <laughs> Most, listen to me, this is the first step in this awful episode. Most tragedies begin with simple disobedience. Simple. Please, take note of that profound truth. What was, think about this, what was the sin that caused death in the whole world? What was it? Was, was it murder? Was it torture? Was it the worst sin you could think of? I think it was simply God said don't and man said I will. And death passed upon all men for that all have sinned ever since. It was simple disobedience to God's word. So here we find David evidently in the wrong place. But then, secondly, in verse number 2, if you look at it there, it says, And it came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And then it says, and David sent and inquired after this woman. And I love this one. It, it, your Bible says, and one said, oh, for that one guy. Whoever that, whoever that one person was, I'm telling you, I believe it says much more than this simple question right here. He says, he said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam? Uh, you know, in essence, he's saying, hey, king, she's got a dad, you know. And then... He says, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, hey, she's got a husband. You, do you see something in those words right there? A, a conviction that should have set in right there? Well, what do we see here? 
It goes on, it says, and David sent messengers and took her. So not only do we find David evidently in the wrong place, but of course, when you're in the wrong place, it's much easier to entertain the wrong thoughts. Hmm? So David is evidently in the wrong place, first of all. Secondly, we find him entertaining the wrong thoughts. He has taken yet another step in the wrong direction. Lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James 1, 14 and 15. We find him, first of all, number one, looking lustfully in verse number two. And then secondly, we find him coveting sinfully. Again, here's this man that says, this is Uriah's wife. Listen to me, listen to me now. What you think about, your thoughts become your actions. This is why you need to guard your heart. This is why you need to guide your thoughts. Young people, can I, can I just, again, just give you a piece of advice? Don't scroll. Don't scroll on your phone. Just don't. Don't sit there and not know where you're going. I, I think about this. I, I think about this in, in, a, in a funny illustration in regards to shopping. Okay? When... Whether you're a male or a female, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to split the church on this one. Amen. But if I think men are very, very blinders when we get the... My, my wife gives me a list of five things, and it's dun 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 I mean, I'm going in the store, get those five things, and get out of there. But now she'll tell you, now that's not true, honey. You're going to go and you're going to go over by the ice cream and you're going to go. And that, 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 it's actually proving my illustration, honey. If we're not laser focused, next thing I'm like, ooh, look at that. Oh, oh. We used to tell our kids when they were little, when, you get, when we get to the aisle and Brother Bryce and they start seeing the candy bars, we used to tell them, don't even ask. Don't, we told when they were like two and three, don't ask because the answer is always going to be no. And we may get you one out of the aisle and sneak it in when you're not looking, but don't ask because we don't want you to get in the habit of just, oh, look, candy. You know, you, know, you know how people, you know how marriages end up in shambles because men are scrolling on their phone or just surfing the web? Here's David. He is entertaining the wrong thoughts. He's looking lustfully. He's coveting sinfully. And then from verses 4 to 27, we find him not only evidently in the wrong place, we find him not only entertaining the wrong thoughts, but we find him engaging in the wrong action. See, it started with him being in the wrong place, and then that wrong place led to wrong thoughts, and wrong thoughts led to wrong actions. And again, just, just condensing the story here, it's amazing to think about. In this story, we find David sinning terribly. Say, what do you mean, Pastor, sinning terribly? In, just in this passage, David breaks five of the Ten Commandments. Five! That's half! You say, what are they? Well, first of all, he broke the first commandment. He made himself God. See, that's always what we do when we sin, when we know what God says and we do what we want anyway. We make ourselves God. And God's the one who said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You don't believe that? That's exactly what Satan tempted Eve with in the garden. 
He said, do what you want to do, not what God said to do. Do what you want to do, and you'll be like God. So he breaks the first commandment. Then, of course, he breaks the sixth commandment. We know in this story that eventually he conspires to have Uriah murdered. And the Bible still says, thou shalt not kill. Exodus 20, verse 13. So he's broken the first, he's broken the sixth. He broke the seventh, thou shalt not commit adultery. He had physical intimacy with another man's wife. That is the very definition of adultery. That's the seventh commandment. The eighth commandment. What's the eighth commandment? Thou shalt not steal. What did he steal? He stole another man's wife. He stole her, stole her purity, stole her innocence from her husband, who was one of his mighty men, who was out to battle on his behalf. By the way, this is the way sin works. It has a snowball effect. It just keeps getting bigger. It just keeps getting bigger. What was the last one? The last one is the tent. And by the way, probably the key to them all. He literally coveted his neighbor's wife. You know, one of the specific things that God said not to covet. God did say, don't covet, don't covet your neighbor's goods. But he specifically said, don't covet your neighbor's wife. That's exactly what David did. We find him engaging in wrong actions. He, he's sinning terribly here. But then in verses 19 through 27, we find him covering completely. You remember what happened. He sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery. She gets word back to him, says, I'm expecting a baby. And since my husband's out to war, this is going to not really work out very well. People can figure things out. And so David, trying to cover it all up, he calls for Uriah to come back off the battle, and he, he gives him the glad hand and the arm around and says, good to see you, buddy. Uh, hey, listen, I know you've been out to battle with Joab, and I appreciate it so much. Why don't you go down and enjoy home for a little bit, knowing that what man coming off the battlefield wouldn't want to enjoy the pleasures of home? But Uriah says, I can't do that. Joab's out there. My comrades are out there. I can't come and enjoy the pleasures of my wife and my home while my, my comrades are out there. Now David's in trouble because she's still pregnant. David says, hmm, what can I do? Ah, all right. Come back, come back, come back again. Comes back and he gets Uriah drunk. He says, now go down and enjoy the pleasures of your wife. Certainly a drunk man. I, I've said this so many times as I've preached on this passage. Uriah had more character at this point drunk than David did sober. But David's still in trouble. He's, Brother Eric, he's still got to cover this thing up. He's got to find a way. So he thinks of the ultimate way. He writes a letter. To Joab, and he says, uh, when you get to a hot part of the battle, you put Uriah in the front, you give the whistle, tell everyone else to come back, and let him take care of Uriah for me. And, I, and again, he, he wraps this letter up, seals it, gives it to Uriah. Again, what character? I remember Dr. Harry Carr 
Brother Jim, such a great pastor, great friend, great preacher. He was talking about loyalty. And he's talking about Uriah's loyalty. And he said this. He said, my loyalty doesn't depend on your loyalty. What a, what a, what a thought that is. Uriah was still loyal. That's the king. He goes and he brings us to Joab. And I can only imagine Joab, the look on Joab's face is like, what? That's what the king wants. Well, that happens. Uriah dies. Joab sends back to David. Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David does this. Whew. But you know, David should have been familiar with that verse from Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. Sin, sin's, a, sin's a bloodhound. Your sin will track you down. And that brings us to chapter 12. We, we find him here. We think about him evidently in the wrong place, entertaining the wrong thoughts, and then engaging in wrong actions, looking lustfully, coveting sinfully, uh, sinning terribly, covering completely. But then, if you look at chapter 12, read with me there, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. By the way, he sent Nathan unto David because of the last verse in chapter 11, the last phrase says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. We would say today, this is, this is the family pet. This little lamb. It was special to this poor family. It's all they had. Verse 4 says, And there came a traveler unto the rich man. And he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. He said, what does that mean, Pastor? That means this man had flocks and herds. He had, he had the fatted calf. He had plenty to spare. But when somebody came to him for a meal, he went over to his neighbors and took their family pet and slaughtered it and made lamb chops out of it. Verse 5, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no pity. So after we find him covering completely, a year goes by, Nathan comes, we find him listening intently, and then we find him reacting angrily to this injustice that has taken place. How dare he! And then Nathan says, Thou art the man. You're the one who did it. Look at verse 7. 
Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house. By the way, here's God again saying, Look at all these things that I've done for you. And thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. And he says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil out of thine own house and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and he, they shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now go to Psalm 51. Because that's the backdrop that brings us to Psalm 51. Our subject tonight is Repentance toward God. Repentance toward God. What is repentance, Pastor? Boy, there's a theological boxing match that's been going on for many years now. I can tell you what I believe it is biblically. Repentance is a change of mind which produces a change of direction and a change of action. Think about it in regards to salvation. I am going headed to hell. I'm presented with the gospel. I can turn to Christ. I can repent and turn to Christ. And I begin to head in a different direction because of Christ. That's where it says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Two sides of the same coin, really. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind which produces a change of direction. But it's important to note, especially in this case, but in every case, listen to me, repentance does not remove consequences for sinful actions. I have said this time and time again, I hope it never happens, you hope it never happens, you pray for me. Listen, if I am unfaithful to my wife, I can be as repentant as I want, I can no longer be your pastor. That's it. That's it. That is a consequence. Thank God for repentance. Thank God for forgiveness. That's what we're looking at here today. But listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Repentance does not remove consequences for action. Let me tell you something about repentance. I'm talking about real repentance tonight. I'm not talking about this fake, uh, Lord, I'm sorry. No, you're sorry you got caught. You're sorry about the consequences. Just like Saul, just like Judas... They, they, weren't, they, they didn't repent toward God. They were sorry they got caught. They were sorry there was consequences. Pharaoh said, I've sinned. None of them had any sort of change. None whatsoever. But David was genuinely heartfelt sorry and repentant. 
You know, the Bible says in Romans 2.4, it is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. It is the fact that God, forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, God could have slapped you. God could have killed you. And he didn't. He just loved you so much. He wanted you to come to your senses and see what you were doing was wrong. See how good, see how loving, see how patient he had been with you. Repentance toward God involves five different characteristics. We've looked at one already, so I'll not dwell long, but number one, repentance toward God involves confrontation. Confrontation. That's exactly why God sent Nathan to David. It wasn't just to tell him a cute little story. It was to confront him. To confront him with sin. Again, I've been preaching a long time now, 25 years. I'm, I believe this is why God ordained prophets and pastors and preachers to con- not, not to just to uh, uh, tickle your ears. To confront you. To preach truth and let the chips fall where they may. You know, because you know what happens when a preacher confronts you? The Holy Spirit confronts you and says, Thou art the man. Thou art the man. I think about 2 Timothy 4 2, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Two of those are negative, reproving and rebuking. Nobody likes to have either one of them. You don't like to go in the boss's office and have him reprove or rebuke you. Confrontation. Secondly, not only does repentance toward God involve confrontation, it involves correction not just enough to be confronted with sin, with error, with wickedness. There's correction. It says there in Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. The, the idea there is there has been correction. Uh, he, he would say uh, later there, verse 8, it says, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. The bones which thou hast broken. My son Luke last year broke his leg. Terrible. No, they, they had to set those bones. And by the way, thank God for anesthesia. Huh? They had to set those, but they, forgive me, the doctor had to re-break them and move them and then put those rods in. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, repentance involves correction. You and I are wrong far, often, far more often than we are right with God. We're wrong. And repentance is simply acknowledging that and allowing God to correct us. Correcting our behavior. These are, these are characteristics of repentance. It's confrontation, there's correction. And that's exactly what happened in uh, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, when David said, I've sinned. I've sinned. How about this one? There's conviction. We're talking about repentance. We're talking about conviction. What is conviction? Look at Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, 
and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. What do we see here? In the New Testament, the Bible teaches us that in John chapter 16, verse 13, that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to the believer. He guides us in all truth. And then we see that in uh, the the salvation message of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. It said, when they heard the truth that Peter preached, they were pricked in their hearts. Remember Brother Lolly said, what should we do? You listen to me. Repentance involves conviction. You have to be convicted that your sin is awful. Not that it's better than somebody else's. Not that it's not as bad as this person. You have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of God that your sin is exceeding sinful, as Romans 7.13 says. Otherwise, you won't repent. You have no need in your mind to repent. You know, because we're all sinners. But sometimes that's an excuse for you to continue in sin. Yeah, we are all, we are all sinners. Thank God David didn't keep committing adultery with every neighbor's wife. He repented because he saw how awful that sin was. He was convicted by the Holy Spirit. Here, here's... Again, this is, this is preaching, this is the Word of God, this is the Spirit of God. I can't convict you. I can't convict anybody. I can't do it. All I can do is deliver the means and say, Holy Spirit, you've got to do the work in people's hearts. Listen, I want, I want my kids, I want my children to love God. I want them to love God like their mother loves God. My goodness, that precious woman loves God. I I try to love God. But you know what? Can't make them. I cannot convict them of sin. I can reprove them for sin, and I will definitely do that as their father as long as they live in my house. But I can't convict them. I'm going to tell you something. Repentance does not happen without confrontation, correction, and conviction. It doesn't happen. Some of you need to repent, but you haven't. Because the Holy Spirit's been trying to convict you about it, and you're just quenching Him, just grieving Him, just pushing Him away. Let me give you the next thing. And again, this is the bridge that a lot of people won't cross. Go to, you're in Psalm 51. Go to Psalm 38. Psalm 38, and then we'll go back to Psalm 51, and then look at a passage in the New Testament. This is an important part of repentance. This is an important part. In repentance is really just saying, I'm wrong, I've sinned, God. But it's not as mechanical as all that. Sometimes we independent Baptists are big on mechanics and poor on feeling. 
We just kind of, you know, just go through the machinery of this. No, this says right here in Psalm 38, verse number 18. Look at it with me. You know, let's, let's read this verse aloud together. Ready? Let's begin. For I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. You say, what's this? Go back to Psalm 51. Repentance toward God involves confrontation. The man of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God confront us about our sin. It involves correction. Not just confrontation of error, but also correction. Then Psalm 51 verse 14 says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thy God of my salvation. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. You see, David knew he had murdered Uriah. Oh, it wasn't his arrow or his sword that did it, but it was his decree, wasn't it? Go to 2 Corinthians, New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Repentance involves confrontation, it involves correction, it involves conviction. This number four, it involves contrition. Contrition. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, please. Contrition. David said, I will be sorry for my sin. Look at verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Are we there? Say amen. amen. He says for, verse number 8, he says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, speaking of 1 Corinthians, which was a hard letter to a very disobedient carnal church, so though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you what? Sorry. Though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to what? Repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage of us by nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Why are we in, why are we in the mess today in the church? There's a lot of answers to that. But I can give you one. Because we make excuses for sin instead of being sorry for sin. If you've had little ones, you've had times where they whack each other with something. And you know, I have a classic line when my kids were little, you know, I, I don't have a specific example, but I can remember times where Eric would whack Luke or Luke would whack Eric or whatever, and, and they would, you know, the one would be crying like this, ah, you know, and the other one would say, I'm sorry. And my classic line, Brother Cole, was, sorry doesn't make it stop hurting. You could throw a rock through a stained glass window and be sorry about it, but it was still made in the 1600s and can't be replaced. 
The sorrow is for the sin. I'm talking about real sorrow. Real could see this is what David had that Saul never did. Remember the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when Saul sinned? He kept, God said, I want you to destroy all the Amalekites, kept the best to himself. And you remember what he kept doing? He kept doing something that David doesn't do once in Psalm 51. He kept saying, well, you know, I, I thought maybe we could, uh, uh, I, yeah, I did disobey you a little, but I thought maybe we could sacrifice. These are some beautiful lambs here. And, and, and well, Agag, you know, the people just kind of put a little bit of pressure on me. So we kept Agag alive, and God said, no, I told you what to do. And now you're making excuses why you didn't do it. You know, if you read through Psalm 51, I think one of the most striking parts of David's contrition is him taking total responsibility for what he did. Total responsibility for breaking five commandments in this one chapter. Contrition. It says in Psalm 51, 17, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. Listen to me, young people. We are living in a day when sin is getting much more open, much more prevalent, and the Bible tells us in uh, Matthew 24, verse 12, because sin did abound, the love of many has waxed cold. And I'll tell you what has waxed cold is our contrition over our sin. Not other people's sin. Your sin. I'm talking about the person in the mirror. That we just gloss it over and say, well, it's, it's no real big deal. And I don't think it's any accident that God has to preach this message when we're getting ready to observe the Lord's table. Because you know what ought to precede the receiving of the Lord's table? Genuine repentance. Repentance toward God involves confrontation. It involves correction. It involves conviction. It involves contrition. Lastly, and throughout the passage, if you go back to Psalm 51, throughout the passage we see this last one, and that is confession. confession. If you just, those of you that mark your Bible, if you highlight your Bible, if you circle words or whatnot, I would challenge you to just, I, I have another Bible, I, I've been preaching out of this Bible for about a year here, and it doesn't, doesn't have a nick in it, but my wide margin Bible is all circles and lines and highlights and all that, and I remember, I, I thought, I said, I should have brought that one tonight. You ought to just circle or highlight all the personal pronouns that David uses here. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me truly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. Uh, verse 6, Behold, thou desirest truth in inward parts, in the hidden parts shall it make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop. Verse 7, 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What do we see confession here? First of all, confession of sin to God and God alone. Yes, he sinned against man. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Israel. But first and foremost, ladies and gentlemen, he sinned against his God. And he told him, and I I believe with everything in me, I believe when I read this, I can see David looking up to heaven with tears streaming down his face. Not, Not the fake crocodile tears. Real contrition. He covered it up for a year. Forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, he'd forgotten about it. How could you forget about that? I'll tell you, people forget about the evil that they do every day. People forget about sins that they've committed. Confession of his sin. How about this? Confession of his guilt. He said their blood guiltiness. I'm, I'm just as guilty as can be, God. You know, this is why many people will not be saved. You have to admit you're guilty. You have to admit you're guilty. This is why many Christians never grow, because you have to admit that you're guilty. You have to admit that that habit that you keep petting is a sin. It's a rotten sin in the nostrils of God. Confessed his sin, confessed his guilt. I love this. He confessed his need for forgiveness. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You know what he's saying there? God, forgive me. I'm so dirty. I'm sinful. Confession of sin, confession of guilt, confession of need for forgiveness, confession of cleansing. How about this a little further there in verse 12? He says, restore unto me the what? Joy of thy salvation. You know what he confessed? He said, I've been covering this up for a year. I haven't had any joy. I haven't had the joy of the Lord. By the way, why would you when you have unconfessed sin in your heart? Why would you think you could have the joy of the Lord? You can't. You can't. By the way, you can have it as soon as you confess. As soon as you tell God what you did, and that it was an affront to Him, and that you are truly sorry of it, you're repenting. Confession of sin, confession of guilt, confession of need for forgiveness, cleansing, need of joy. And then he says there in verse 12 as well, he says, restore unto me. You know what the, the idea is? It says, restore unto me the joy. But the idea of restoration is there has been a breach. Have you ever had somebody that was in your life and maybe you had a crosswords or something happened and There was a time where they weren't in your life, and then if you've been blessed enough to have somebody come back into your life, whether you said sorry or they said sorry, I've experienced this multiple times in the ministry, and it's a wonderful thing to be restored to somebody, to have somebody restored to a friendship and a fellowship. David said, listen, all that I did caused me to be way over here and God, you to be way over there. Please restore me. Again, it's the story of the prodigal. It's the story of the prodigal. Read it. Read it in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, but especially uh, verses 20 through 20, verse 17 through 24. The prodigal says, look, what am I doing? This is stupid. 
I'm out here in this sinful life, in this sinful lifestyle, and my father treats his servants better than I'm being treated out here. I'll just go back and ask him to be as I'm going to tell my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. He says almost the same language that David uses here. He said, I've, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Just make me as one of the hired servants. And then, thank God, he not only has this conversation in his mind, but he gets up and does it. And as soon as his father sees him, runs to him, and he hugs on him. And forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, he slobbers on him, cries, and son, I've been waiting for you to come home. And the son does exactly what he said he would do. He says, Father, before you get into all that, I need to tell you something. I have sinned. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. That is repentance. That is repentance. And if you think you're beyond repentance, then you need it more than anyone in this room. We still battle the sins of the heart like the elder brother did. Unforgiveness and anger and all those things. Judgment. Well, we still battle those sins of the flesh too, don't we? Come on now, church. Now's the time for a good amen. Yeah, we do. Why? Because we are still sinners. But we need to consistently, you ought to make it part of your prayer time, repent. Say, God, show me areas of your life, areas of my life that are not pleasing to you, that are sinful, and help me to repent. Repentance toward God always involves confrontation. Don't ever be mad at a preacher for stepping on your toes. Don't wear those steel-toed boots to church. Amen? Let the preacher step on your toes. You know who's really stepping on your toes? The Holy Spirit. Confrontation. Then there's correction. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, convict me of sin. And there's contrition. I, nobody can make you sorry for your sin. You've got to love God. If you love God, you'll be sorry when you sin and break His heart. And then confession. Confession of sin, guilt, need of forgiveness, cleansing, need of joy, restoration. This is repentance toward God. It's an important and oft-neglected subject in the house of God. Father, we love you. As we move into...